Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like Yuri Gitman, Pablo Van Wetten, Jan Veladin. Kevin Boner, Shannon Watson, and hopefully you. If you're not already a supporter, please consider joining the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to all sorts of cool stuff. The Team Human archives are occasional bonus episodes of interviews with people from my past or old talks or even new talks and things that I'm doing around. Uh, you'll get access to our Discord channel and Team Human salons. We're also starting a, a new kind of episode that teammates will get to play along with where we're doing a Q&A sessions and discussions in our salon that we're going to be turning into episodes. So please consider joining Team Human. You'll also get free links to my weekly media columns that are otherwise trapped behind the medium paywall. And uh, most of all, you'll get that great feeling of knowing that you are contributing to making Team Human happen. Thanks, everybody, for supporting this work. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. A chance to zig when everyone else is zagging. Embrace what's coming. Run into the burning building. Choose fun over fear. Do not despair. You have found the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Founder of Arts Lab Teesside, Teesside Rising, the Creative Arts Recruitment Squad, and the post-apocalypse school of Teesside, Lisa Lovebucket. From dry stone walling to laying hedges to whatever it is, you know, we're, we're at the cusp where so many of these skills are going to fall out of living memory. And so hopefully, now that we've got the post-apocalypse school, we can really preserve these and teach them and, and secure them for future generations. Lisa will be showing us how learning to prepare for the worst may just give us the resilience we need to avoid apocalypse altogether. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I overheard a couple of high school students talking this morning about their college options. And I heard one of them say, I don't think I'm going to apply to Grinnell anymore. And the other one said, uh, yeah, rice. Rice is in Texas. Screw them. They were, <laughs> they were looking at the map of U.S. states that are either implementing or likely to implement bans on abortion in the wake of you know, the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And the kids were eliminating schools within imperiled states from their lists of college application candidates. 
And there's other folks I know who are, you know, they're looking at moving from red states to blue states or out of the United States altogether. One writer friend of mine said they're thinking of going to Canada, that they were going to go when Trump was elected, but they didn't want to lose hope. And now that Roe v. Wade was overturned, they're just going to go. He doesn't want to raise his daughter in a country like this. And I get that. I mean, it, it feels like America is moving backwards because we used to pretty much lead the world in granting at least certain human rights. And now we are the sole outlier among developed nations. We're the only ones in the G7 that deny a national right to abortion. And let's not even get into our our uh, unique and ever-worsening denial of national health care or our inability to deny weapons to those who shouldn't even be carrying them. So I get I get all this. It sucks, but I don't know that retreat is the answer, especially for those of us who have the privilege of doing so. I mean, I'm not I'm not bragging about it. I I got an opportunity right when Trump was elected that very week I got an opportunity to move to Canada and it was to do this really cool kind of artist in residence thing that may have been a lifelong opportunity and I turned it down and I may not have otherwise but I turned it down right then because it felt unethical to me to have enjoyed everything America offered. I got to go to college and a good high school, and I got, you know, a writing career, only to bail because things were getting rough. And who am I leaving behind, right? So I can see the logic in boycotting schools or refusing to take jobs in states that ban abortion. It could put a certain kind of pressure on state legislatures, you know, that, that if they if they succumb to theocratic rule, then conducting business is going to get increasingly hard. That you got to stay at least maybe a hundred years or less behind global human rights standards in order to be successful. That'd be a cool thing to teach states. But I I can see why why young people don't want to go to a college, you know, and spend their first couple of years of of adulthood so to speak, you know, without full access to reproductive health care. But, you know, most college kids will retain access to abortion pills, or if they're going to college, they're going to be able to travel back home or somewhere else to get health care. There's better options than retreat for those of us who are deeply concerned about the impact of abortion bans on people in red states who can't afford to pay for illegal care. I mean, by illegal care, I mean, like, just watch the rates of of DNC procedures for removal of what they'll list as like abnormal tissue. Just watch those rates go up for the wealthy over the coming years as as abortion is is more and more illegal. You know, I I think that the colleges they're probably the place to be. A college in a red state that's going to be most likely a a central organizing hub for political action or practical assistance as these states ban reproductive health care. If I were a socially motivated young person looking at colleges today, I'd like to think I'd choose not to retreat, but to advance. You know, what better opportunity to do something constructive in this environment than to organize transportation or van service for women who need procedures in legal states? or education about what zygotes really are, or constructive conversations between those with opposing views. It may not be instinctual to run into a burning building to save the people inside, but we are not there yet. And there's many of us still in a position to assist others at virtually no risk to ourselves. I'm not talking about an underground railroad here, but an overground public demonstration of political support and practical aid. In short, if 
you have the option of alternatives, then you also have the means to offer them to those who don't. really delighted to bring you today's guest, a remarkable artist, activist, communitarian, educator, except all of those labels diminish what she's achieved. Lisa Lovebucket is all that, but she seems to do it all through the course of simply living her life. It's as if she performs life itself as an expression of social practice and change-making. Her current project, something I was thinking to start myself and then found by searching for it, is called the Post-Apocalypse School of Teesside. And it's exactly what it sounds like, the ultimate prep school. And I'll let her describe it to you as she did to me. It's not about building bunkers, but leaning in to a more resilient future. So hi, Lisa Lovebucket. It's great to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you. And thank you so much for getting me on at such short notice. Oh, well, gosh, thanks for coming on on such short notice. As long as we have a moment. Uh, you know, I don't know how much you know about this show. I don't generally do, like, good interviews. I just talk with people, which is, <laughs> which is as much to, for my own peace of mind, I was going to say enrichment, but I'm over-enriched at this point. I'm really trying to... Um, feel okay about my about my own role and my future and where we're going and what we're doing and trying to orient myself to an increasingly wobbly uh, reality. And when I saw about the uh, post-apocalypse school of Teesside that that you're founding, I felt a great a great sense of relief. I mean, my own daughter's about to go off to college and she'll go to some regular school and I keep offering her, you know, if you wanted, instead of going to college, you could just learn permaculture. You could. <laughs> I'm happy to teach you foraging or <laughs> something that will actually be useful in your future. I'm wondering how how the idea for a post-apocalypse school came up, and 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 kind of how you how you built built it out. It started last year when my son went to a weekend of events at our local primary school hmm. that was held by, he was a, he's a former head teacher, he's a former scoutmaster, and at some point he realised exactly what you're saying, he wasn't teaching kids anything that they needed to know, and so he quit all that, and also he wasn't reaching the kids that he wanted to reach, you know, the hmm. kind of kids that he wanted to teach weren't the kind that were going to put on a uniform and salute a flag. So he set up his own organization called Sylvan Law, which means wisdom of the woods. So he teaches kids foraging and archery and fire making and shelter building and water purification, all the skills that are really good fun right now, but may save their lives over the years to come. So I absolutely loved what he was doing. And I approached him with the idea of adapting that to the urban environment have another organization called Arts Lab Teesside and we started really thinking about the apocalypse. Like you say, permaculture, I've got a lot of people that are growing their own, they've got allotments, they're self-sufficient, but I say to them, so what are you going to do post-apocalypse because you're going to be the first to die because <laughs> all those people that haven't been doing this all of these years are going to turn up, kill you and steal everything. Hmm. So then we had to think, you know, it's not good enough to grow your own. You need to be able to defend it. You need to be able to hand-to-hand -hand combat, sword fighting. You need to be able to make bows and arrows, you know. You've got to be able to defend. You've got to find the right place. Wow. So they're learning that too, the, all these Hunger Games sorts of skills? <laughs> Obviously, some of it's quite tricky to teach, like, you know, the picking locks and breaking into places and blowing stuff up and killing stuff. So that's got to be taught in virtual reality for now. Mm -hmm. And then and obviously, again, that's the thing. It's like we want it to be eventually a 24-7 urban space 
that's a cashless society that anyone can rock up to anytime, day or night, and there'll be stuff happening there. And we want it to appeal to people of all generations. You know what it's like when you're going out, if you've got three generations, often someone's compromising. Not everybody's doing what they want to do. This will be a place where somebody can find everything. You know, if you want to learn spear fishing and axe throwing, but if you want to learn macrame and crochet, whatever you want to learn, you'll be able to learn it there. But I figure the more people who know how to forage and spearfish and permaculture their cauliflower, then the fewer people will have to know Krav Maga. Right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So when I first came up with the idea, it was the idea that it could be almost immersive theater. So you, you, you join the school, you're assigned a team of eight people. And that will be a team of different ages, different abilities. And between you, you have to learn all the skills. So Mm. then the graduation, like your final exam, there'll be two. There'll be one in the virtual reality where you're blowing all the stuff up and, you know, killing zombies in fence duty. But on the other, you're you're just going to be dumped in a bit of wasteland. And you've got two days to get from one side to the other. The whole team has to get there. Otherwise, nobody graduates. So you might have somebody who, who has mobility issues. So you might need to wrangle a horse or you might need to hotwire a car or you might need to fashion a stretcher. Whatever it is, whatever you need to do to get to one side for, to the other. And that's why we're teaching things like uh, British Sign Language. Because there's a great big zombie horde there and your team's here. You need to silently communicate what you need to do to get past that zombie horde. Oh, right, because they, they're attracted to sound. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> they are in the movies. <laughs> but we we're not thinking... find out. <laughs> right, but I mean, zombies are not the main problem in a, in a true... I mean, a, a, a true post-apocalypse is not necessarily something that looks like the road, you know, where, where there's nothing there, where nothing at all is working. But by apocalypse, I think what we mean is just the the kind of the collapse of the long supply chain industrialized civilization that we live in, a world where cash will get you baby formula at the shopping mall. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, are you aware of a book called The Knowledge by Lewis Dartnell? Mm-mm. So this is really key book. So at the beginning, he considers all different types of ways that the apocalypse might come, whether that's climate change, a virus, civil unrest, riots, whatever it is, he considers what the starting point may be and therefore what we need to know. And at the school, the idea is that we'll have like a BA and an MA. So for the BA, we could just teach people how to pickle food. You know, there's some food, there's some pickling fluid, there's the jar. Here's your, how you put all that together. But in the MA, there's nothing. So we've got a glass blower. So you make your jars. We've got somebody who can make fashion a vacuum seal. We've got somebody who can teach us how to make pickling fluid. And of course, you're going to have to grow your own food to pickle in the first place. Right. It reminds me of, you know, Jim Kunstler wrote these novels, um, The Handmade Novels. It's a series of books about, you know, he doesn't really explain exactly what sort of nuclear thing happened, but everybody's depending on themselves. And, you know, some things they can figure out, like, you know, basic irrigation and how to make candles and uh, how to grow alternatives to wheat because the wheat, you know, they were people were having trouble growing wheat and whatever was left of the topsoil. And some things they couldn't figure out, you know, biodiesel wasn't quite working for them. You know, there's some things that you need real knowledge to to figure out how to do or how to make electricity or engines or hydraulics and all. How high tech are you getting people in this? What are they, in other words, how, how industrial do they, do they get? Yeah, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, one of the things I like about the post-apocalypse school at Teesside is the acronym is the past. So it's almost like, are we going to go back to pre-industrialization? Are we going to be living in the woods, you know, scavenging? Or is there going to be technology left? And if so, mm. can we make it usable? So a bunch of guys, if you're out there listening, uh, Teesside Hackspace, I haven't visited yet, but I really want to go and see them. It's an amazing uh, place in, in Middlesbrough where... If you've got any kind of electronic equipment that's broken down, you take it along there and they teach you how to fix it. It's, it's a bunch of old engineers that are now making stuff that doesn't work anymore, making it usable. So that's it. You know, it yeah. would be great to think that we can take old technology and still use it 
you know, even after the apocalypse. Some of it anyway. It's tricky. We have a we have a repair cafe here in, in my town and there's a, a repair movement, really. Uh, you know, but mostly it's people fixing, you know, a, a toaster or a radio. You know, uh, try fixing a car that's made after, you know, the year 2000. It's computers. You know, there's no points and plugs. <laughs> there's yeah, and, <laughs> and really difficult to hotwire as well. Because, yeah. like, you know, in the old days, you could just hotwire it, you know, siphon off the tanks and off you go. But it's more complicated these days. Oh, much. You know, they're all calling home, you know, and talking to Central Command on whether they should start or not. It's a, yeah, they're networked. It's a different. <laughs> but then again, we have some local guys. See, another hat that I wear, it's uh, called the Creative Arts Recruitment Squad, basically finding new people and forcing them into the arts. And mm. um, <laughs> we have <laughs> we have this band. It's a three-piece, easy listening band of three guys over 80 years old. And they happen to hear about the post-apocalypse school at Teesside. So it turns out one of them, he's amazing. It's like uh, he, can, he can get most of the meat off a pheasant in 10 seconds. You know, <laughs> it's just going through the neck. It's incredible. And, uh, and he's a brilliant trout fisher. I know, sorry, vegetarians, <laughs> vegans. Uh, but you might have to think about that post-apocalypse because let's face it, we're not going to be farming en masse. And the other guy's like a survival expert. Like he's been teaching survival skills for people for decades. So they're now part of the faculty. At our last session, um, Lester taught us like, you know, survival, um, first aid. He showed us how to cut off his blood supply to his arm mm. and, you know, uh, and taught us how long that he could survive, that arm would survive and be intact and how long we could cut off the supply for. So I think the thing is there are, I think between us, we perhaps already have most of the skills we need to survive. It's just that bringing it together and that realisation of it and the realisation that there is a legitimate need to be thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to me is, I mean, we use the word survive a lot and post-apocalypse a lot, but it's the very same skills that could just be looked at as sustainable and apocalypse avoidant. In other words, the the I've said this often, the same things that we would learn to survive in an apocalypse are the very behaviors that could prevent the need for an apocalypse. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the idea. It's like we're teaching people how to leave, lead self-sufficient, sustainable lives now. And, you know, if there's no apocalypse, then absolutely brilliant. And perhaps if enough people learn those skills, that'll help to ward off quite a few of the apocalyptic scenarios that are on the table right now. You would think so. I mean, we certainly become a whole lot less brittle as a society. If people know how to grow food or forage or take care of themselves or do their first aid, then if there is a shock to the system, if there's an earthquake or a Fukuyama or a whatever bad thing happens or a, a, a weather change, then at least you've got, if you have 70, 80% of people who know how to take care of themselves and their neighbors when a shock like that comes, then you don't get the social unrest. You don't have people looting and running around with guns. You know, it doesn't have to tip into that that awful place that my my billionaires were so concerned about. You know, they they look at the event as this tipping point, this moment that they get on the helicopter and get to their Navy SEAL protected facility. And it's like, no, it's like when you think of it in those binary ways, then, well, yeah, sure, the only, the only possible choice is apocalypse. But if we can think about it in, in more in terms of how do we respond to each of these stresses, you know, as the stresses grow, perhaps, it doesn't have to be terminal like that. No, absolutely not. And I think um, that's really the key focus, isn't it? Because, we, you know, we don't want to be living on the road or in Mad Max. Uh, we want to be able to cope, able to survive, and even for art and literature, to survive mm. because for me they're kind of a bedrock of civilization from you know music for me is the dawn of human consciousness so that's the other thing we're learning how to make instruments um, we're learning how to make paper we're learning how to make books artist charcoal you know so not only is it an idea of this is how we survive an apocalypse but this is how we can rebuild a new 
civilization on a much lesser scale because all the great civilization, you know, this is what we don't seem to, team human <laughs> doesn't seem to be learning right now is that all great civilizations fall and they fall exactly as you're saying about these billionaires, they fall when wealth equality gets so extreme that that inherently collapses. I mean, I'm sure there's great civilizations out there that we might not even have discovered in the deepest jungle that have been existing as they are for thousands of years. Right. You know, for me, that that's the great civilization. And we need to be thinking about that. It doesn't always have to be global. It doesn't always have to be on this full-on scale. And, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, all, all power to the billionaires and their escape plans, but I don't care how beautiful your bunker is. If you can't leave it, it's a prison. Oh, right. And if you don't know how to grow sustainably inside it. I mean, I saw the plans for one of them. The guy's got this um, heated dome swimming pool in there. And I'm like, where are you going to get parts for your filtration system that you're, you know, it's like a heated swimming pool is not the kind of thing that you can maintain without a factory making, what are you going to 3D print your things and where you're going to get the goop for that and it just they're not really thinking through the the respiration of these systems they, they're thinking of them as oh well I'll, if i could just stay in there for you know 30 years then i'll be it's like good luck with that 30 years it's a long time it's like there's still air and groundwater and germs and and hordes of people and angry navy seals who aren't getting what they want from it's like this <laughs> this doesn't this doesn't work who's gonna do the work you know this is what get gets me i mean are they breeding servants in there already because come the apocalypse when when money means nothing what why is anyone going to do their work for them right that was what they kept asking how do i keep control of my security force after my money's worthless it's like you can't <laughs> you can't they're, <laughs> unless they're your friends that's what i said i joke to them pay for you pay for their daughter's bat mitzvahs now you know <laughs> <laughs> but this is it. I mean, I came up with this idea for a like science fiction short story some time ago. But I'm sure there's some of them out there that are breeding servants in captivity that don't know there's an outside world and only know their right. quarters because that's they're the only cloning. way you're going to really, yeah, <laughs> cloning. Well, they're ready. They're hoping for robots to to get there in time. But the the people who come to the school now are they? of a, a wide uh, uh, kind of economic and social class background? Or are they mostly, you know, uh, like children of the wealthy maker, Rudolf Steiner people? Uh, no, this is Teesside. <laughs> it's invisible land to most people, um, somewhere between, where might you know, but north of York. And mm -hmm. uh, it's between York and Newcastle. Okay. So, so quite a little bit south of Scotland. That's probably mm -hmm. <laughs> the nearest I can describe. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. It was, I mean, steel was, was its, its, its big industrial heritage. Um, you know, Sydney Harbour Bridge is built of Teesside steel. But obviously that's all gone. Um, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of deprivation. Mm. I think only Liverpool rivals Teesside for deprivation. And so with it being outside um, a kind of art space presently, you know, we do, I mean, we do get some quite well-to-do people, but no, most of us are just ordinary people living ordinary lives. We're not, we're not focusing on kids, so anyone of any age um, can learn these skills. You know, I don't think that there's any age that you get to where you don't want to play with fire. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do, we, I mean, you know, we really want to re reach the kids that at the moment are considered to be, you know, a plague on society. You know, these kids, it's like, as you say, it's like, oh, they're either, they're either condemned for just staring at their devices all the time. But then if they're out in the park after dark, they're a social problem. But, you know, that's the, the point of the school is come to us and, you know, smash things and burn things. <laughs> You know, if, if, if you want to burn things, do you know five different ways to create fire that, you know, in different weather conditions, you know, how, how do you do it in a windy condition? Like, come here, we'll, if you want to learn, if you want to start fires, we'll teach you how to really have some in-depth knowledge on starting fires. Like, you know, kids carry a knife. You want to carry a knife? 
Come and meet Ken. He's 83. He'll teach you how to get most of the meat off a pheasant in 10 seconds. This is the right. nice skills that we need. Right. Or how to fight with it or how to sharpen it or anything. Yeah. And um, we got a, a, another Ken who um, teaches street smart self-defense. So obviously everybody there knows how has to need to know how to uh, <laughs> disarm anybody with a knife if we're right. going to, you know, let the kids loose in there. But I think this is this is the idea. It's a social space where you can bring everyone together and everyone can stop being so scared of one another and everyone can work collectively um, there's a there's another uh, there's an estate in um, Middlesbrough called Easterside that had quite a lot of antisocial behaviour and they went in there and they started a boxing club and it's been absolutely brilliant for those kids you know it's something that they actually want to engage with and it gives them that confidence and that and they're not going out and and randomly starting fights in the street when they can go and be in that kind of contained environment and learn proper boxing skills so. Yeah, that's part of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book. You know, it's what all the, the Catholic priests used to do. You know, the movies, Angels with Dirty Faces. You go and play basketball or start a boxing club and you flip the whole thing around. It's funny. It, it also reminds me of um, when I was young, the, there was a, a, a strong kind of a, a pro-Israel Zionist movement in America, but what it wasn't about like Israel and the West Bank. I mean, th that stuff really hadn't happened yet. It was more about how to build a kibbutz, you know, how to go to a piece of desert and get your little uh, shelter up by nightfall and how would that work. And in some ways, they were taking what felt to many like a nightmare scenario of what do we do if we end up in the desert? with 30 people, how do we survive? But they turned it into like camp. It's like, okay, you would dig for water, you make a well, here's how you make a little house, here's how you divide your labor, here's how you play, here's a, a, a ball game that requires no net, <laughs> no ball. No, it's like, and then, uh, so all these scary, challenging things become play. And that's why I like, you know, and I could see people objecting to it, but I like naming this project the post-apocalypse school of Teesside because it's saying, you're worried about the apocalypse? Let's just take it on, you know? And, and it becomes a joyful, playful it's not celebrating the end of the world. It's it's kind of laughing in the face of that existential despair and going, you want apocalypse? I'll show you an apocalypse that's worth living for, you know? Yeah, that's kind of what T-Side's all about, really. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, as we say, it's like a subtle blend of fun, creativity and survival skills. And we do emphasize the fun and the creativity because... You know, I was talking to one of our faculty uh, a couple of weeks ago, Katie Gethin, and we were, you know, we got down there seriously about, you know, I mean, having kids these days, it used to be, you know, for at least for people in Western civil society, you know, we're really lucky. You, you, you had kids, you had a house, you had kids, and then you leave that house to the kids, and then they have kids. It's like there's, there's, right. I don't know. I don't know whether we can fully imagine that, that is going to be an ongoing scenario, that things are going to be stable, that it's going to just go through generation and generation. You know, we don't know what's coming. Well, most of the progress, though, that we've been doing uh, the last 50 or 100 years is all fake anyway. You know, it's it's not been that, oh, people really want to get out of their town into some other place to go make a life for themselves. It's like you had a life for yourself. Uh, what, what they're doing is just serving the needs of a market to grow. So they convince us that, oh, you've got to... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Move on and get somewhere and do something and make something of yourself. It's like, what does that even mean? And who on their deathbed is thinking, oh, I made, I did it. I No, you're just thinking how many people eyes did I get to really ponder into, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, this idea of growth and economy and expanding economies and economies must expand all the time. You know, this is this is really a lot of the reason why our planet's in the state it is, isn't it? I mean, um, I think it was back in the 1950s that our Buckminster Fuller calculated that in terms of real wealth, you know, that's human intellect and planetary resources, it would cost us a hell of a lot less to pay everybody $40,000 a year to stay at home, not consuming all that petrol, going to that factory, <laughs> making those plastic flowers that nobody needs, using all that energy, pumping out all that toxic waste, you know, we don't, we don't need any of that. Just stay at home, read a book, and you're, you're really helping. Well, exactly. Once you look at the externalized cost of all of this supposed production, it's not worth even doing. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just, I know it's a, you go into, you know, that's when universal basic income starts to make sense. It's like, oh, the, the only thing that's in scarce supply right now really is the work itself, you know, and it's only scarce because we're using giant industrial tractors to dig up the ground rather than much healthier for the topsoil, you know, less intensive agriculture practice. I mean, it's hard to grow things in soil in a way that's sustainable for the soil. It's harder than just taking a machine and a bunch of Monsanto chemicals and growing fake broccoli. But, you know, we could put people to work doing these. It's so we would just you wouldn't have enough. So you only get to work two days a week. Sorry. We've only got two days worth because you've got to share this labor with everybody else. And then you have more than enough food and you're going to have to find something else to do with your time, like like the art that you're talking about. And maybe that will occupy people enough, you know, having artistic <laughs> and intimate experiences. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, back in the day, I was involved in, in politics for the, the Rainbow I Party. I saw you ran for office. Yeah. <laughs> Did you serve? Did you, <laughs> no. You no, didn't win? No. I mean, I stood for the Rainbow Dream Ticket Party in a, in a um, quite long history of the party. No one's ever retained their deposit even. So. Oh, I um, love that. I saw the paragraphs you wrote about the rainbow, though, the, the rainbow party. And I thought, oh, this is this sounds good. This sounds quite progressive and pro-human. We were. We were amazing. A <laughs> um, uh, uh, guy called Nick Alderton um, was a main contributor to our manifesto. And at the time, it just seemed utterly ridiculous, everything that we were proposing from, that there should be free... Hot, hot, there were hotspots at the time, that there should be mobile hotspots everywhere across the city that was free to everybody to access. That just seemed utterly, we were all on dial-up still then, seemed utterly preposterous. The four-day working week, you know, right back then, we were like the day off, you know, the long Which weekend. Which we're trying now. We're, they're, they're finally, this is this week they announced it where? In England somewhere, isn't it? They are, yes. Yeah, they're trialling. And you know that they're going to find out that people are more productive working four days in a week than they are five. You just right. know that absolutely so I'm really glad we're having a chance to prove that and you know an end to obnoxico which was um Buckminster Fuller's term for all this useless stuff that we make that mm. nobody needs um so yeah I mean I guess a lot of the thinking behind all this was was formed back then in thinking about you know I mean it's not like it's a new thing isn't it I mean it's been obvious for decades the way that we're destroying the planet well, we're not destroying the planet. The planet will survive. The planet's going to be fine. We need to stop worrying about the planet. It's humanity's ability to sustain its life on this planet that, that's in jeopardy. Right. And to do it in a way that doesn't kill all the other species, too. I mean, we are, we're terrible to our little friends. We are, yeah. I mean, you know, the oceans. I remember going, um, I went to the Maldives Islands back in, oh, about 25 years ago. And mm. it was just incredible, you know, uh, scuba diving, all the fan cars, it's just so beautiful. Um, I remember it was 1987 because we went back 
the following year that we could only afford because it was the the World Cup was on, and uh, so nobody from this country wanted to go on holiday, and so um, we managed to get a really cheap deal there. And at first we we're like, wow, look at this glowing white coral, and then you know just became apparent that it was glowing white because it had been bleached within you know they, they mm. called it five seconds to midnight out there if if the the sea temperature had remained so high for literally a few more days then none of that coral would ever have recovered yet it was really hard but you, you know some of the uh, scuba diving instructors out there were pretty much suicidal because they'd just witnessed this just complete desolation happen under the sea I mean, they're saying, I, I think that it, it's pretty well concluded. I mean, that those aren't recoverable. Yeah. I mean, the fan coral, you know, takes 25 years or so to grow back. But the, the, the hard coral, that, I mean, that recovers. And, you know, it's amazing what you can do. I mean, you just sink something in the ocean, yeah? And then it's going to be a coral reef in, in oh, really? sort of five years. In the right parts of the world, you know, so I don't right. think it's... I don't think it's quite hot enough in the North Sea to be growing coral reefs. But anywhere where coral grows, just just chuck something in there and, uh, right. and you'll have a reef soon. I'll go sink something. It's the, it's the ultimate Discordian game, isn't it? Sink. Just yeah. <laughs> find something and sink it. Yeah, really. <laughs> so I can imagine doing what you're doing in something what we city people would call the countryside, you know, where there's some lawn. You know, if I wanted to start the post-apocalyptic school of, of Queens or Manhattan, you know, there's not a lot of foraging that we can do there. I guess, what would we do? You get rooftop agriculture people and vertical farming people and, and learn how to do those sorts of things or eat rats. I mean, what do we do? <laughs> you might be surprised. I mean, as I say, when David walked up to this bit of wasteland, he was like, there's a three-course meal here. And we had Lucy Kazakreya, who's an incredible forager, join us. And the idea was that we went on this walk over to the old town hall to see what there was in all the fields out there. And we, 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 we literally only got halfway down the road. We didn't get anywhere near the old town hall because there was so much just on, you know, on, the, on the side of the roads, just you know, urban wilderness. It's like overgrown. Like all, all the stuff, next time you walk down Queens, just keep your eye out. You know, all because nature doesn't take long. Nature, you know, we, routine maintenance only has to stop for a really small amount of time and then everything <laughs> turns back to nature. You know, I, I love the, the start of Lewis Dartnell's book where he describes nature reclaiming the urban environment. And, you know, it's only going to be about 20 years after cities stop where there's, there's going to be nature everywhere. There's going to be, you know, street signs are going to be vines and, and you know, stuff's going to be growing in that. There's going to be stuff, great, you know, as, as, as the, all the windows and the offices are smashed and the paper billows yeah. out, that's going to turn into mulch and that's going to rock down and then little saplings right. will take hold. And, then, and some of these vines and things will have little summer squash on them and things we can eat. Absolutely, um, but, and, but but you're it's right. It's not just I mean, poison is, ivy. <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, some stuff like elderflower or stuff like that. It's all really easy to see, but you foraging, you really do need to know your skills. You need to know what stuff looks like at every different season because it's going to look different every single time of the year. There's lots of plants that look so similar, and some are going to kill you, and some are mm. going to heal you, and you've really got to know which is which. So it's not – I mean, we learn, we, learn, we learn a lot in an hour, and, you know, we could go home, we could make nettle tea, we could, you know, rosehip syrup, dandelion and burdock. You know, all of these things were just in this tiny short walk. Mm. But if, you, if you're really going to be living – off foraging, then you need to know your stuff. Right. I mean, it just seems easier to forage than defending a farm, you know? Because <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the whole thing. It's like if you can if you can build a shelter out of, you know, anywhere you go, if you know how to make fire anywhere you go, if you know how to purify water, then you are mobile and you're a hell of a lot safer if you're mobile because whatever's coming at you, if you need to leave, you can just up and leave. Right. And I think you look at it, it's not like, again, like you're, itinerant all the time it's more like do you have the skills to decide 
I don't like the place we're at is getting exploitative or the men in this place are starting to dominate the women in really uncomfortable ways. Do I have the skills and confidence to walk for a week until I find a better place? You know, that's sort of what what we're talking about. You know, it's 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 autonomy without cops and judges and you know, uh, uh, supermarkets, you know, yeah. it, which is not the end of the world. It's like the vast majority of human beings lived without America, <laughs> you know, <laughs> without yeah. the New York Stock Exchange. We did it somehow. And, and, and we can complain. And yes, it's sad to lose the Met. You know, it's sad to lose Hollywood for a while or whatever. Some of these things that are, that are, are, are great achievements, but I remember the first things I read in college. They had us read in the English department. They had us read English literature in order. And the oldest <laughs> stuff were these weird poems. Like one was called The Wanderer. And it was in Old English. And it was these people walking around looking at the ruins of the Romans. And they would say, what gods built these? They couldn't understand how they were even made, much less what an aqueduct did you know and I, I feel the same way that we will look you know 100 200 300 years from now we could look at the subway system or disney world and go what was this how did they how did they do this um but it doesn't mean our lives are unhappy i mean we might still have music and sex and poetry and uh, you know all those and, and love and family just not uh, uh in the way we do right now and it's not that's that's not the end of the world. No, absolutely. I think uh, you, you've uh, <laughs> we can survive with just that. I'm sure. You know, um, it's nice to have all of these modern conveniences. It's brilliant to speak to you. You know, so many hundreds of miles away here and, and see you. I mean, that's mm -hmm. wow. You know, it's a miracle. It. This is a miracle. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I do think we forget to give ourselves a big pat on the back because you know most of humanity isn't exploiting people. Most of humanity is getting by and leading the best lives that they can and, uh, and all power to that. And we, have, I mean, wow, what we've done as a, a species, you know, we, we talked about all the negative impact that we have, how we're destroying other species, you know, the, the effect that we've had on the planet. But sometimes we need to sit back and think, wow, what we have achieved that's positive and recognize that. Yeah, and even if if some of the people, I mean, it's just not as integrated as it should be. Some of the people responsible for bringing us these wonderful things, the the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos is out there. Um, some of them are could have done it in a better and more holistic way, right? The the technologies could have been developed without all of the same externalized costs. They, you know, they 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 did it like white hot fire instead of a good slow burn. You know, but it's, it's never too late, guys, you know, if right. you're out there listening, it all, it, you know, because that's, that's one thing that really gets to me is really we, we already have everything that we need to feed, mm -hmm. clothes, how to educate. We've got everything that we need to, to, to stop the desolation of the planet. All we need to do is decide collectively as humanity, as team human, that we want to do that. And really it, it could happen pretty much you know overnight we could just stop doing all the destructive things we could just focus on making our lives sustainable you know globally you know the, the big guys you know let that money's doing nothing your money's on holiday in the cayman islands you know while people are starving come on get that money back off holiday and put it to some use that that that's it right there's a, an economic obesity at this point that the majority of the required growth of this economy is not in order to keep people fed and keep to the even the, the, the machines of industry running. It's only to increase the coffers of, you know, the 90 multi-billionaire families on the planet. And it's like the, the one billion you have is really enough. That one's enough. It's not good. They, they can't even find asset classes in which to inject the money, which is what's making real estate and land and everything else that we want so expensive. <laughs> it's that they, they just can't, they can't find another way to do the bookkeeping on their wealth. There's not enough physical assets in reality 
to charge with their dollars and euros, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And you have to think that, you know, underneath that, that's because these people are scared, you know? They're amassing this wealth because they think it's going to protect them. And, and it's not. The wealth is going to be worth nothing if everything collapses. You know, all of that yeah. work, all of that destruction, of the planet, and it's going to be for nothing at all whatsoever. I know. It is odd. It, it, it did all take off. And it's funny because I was finally doing research into this. It all started to take off in the 1970s when that first much maligned Club of Rome report came out where at Club of Rome, they said, oh, look, you know, we're limited. And if we don't change our ways, we're going to use up the fixed amount of stuff on the planet by such and such a date. And the the wealthiest families in the world, like the Koch brothers and all, they looked at that data and the scientists and said, oh, this is true. And they started to pay for two things at that point. They paid for their own survival and they paid for disinformation campaigns so that the rest of the world wouldn't believe this was happening and compete <laughs> for that land and resources and stuff that they were going to use to to survive. And that's such a, it's such a cynical two-pronged strategy. But I, I, what I'm trying to do is help convince them that it doesn't work. You can't earn enough money to insulate yourself from the reality you're creating by accumulating money in that way. It just it doesn't work. That's almost pure the pure uh, physics of karma. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's like, you know, if that if that money could be unleashed on the world, it, it it's incredible what, what what we might suddenly achieve. But there were, I mean, I think there's a growing movement. I know that there was um, an organization in the US that started up here that's people that have got a million pounds or more that are realizing that it's like that they've got the house, they've got the car, they've got the swimming pool, the kids have got the houses. That's enough for them. And they're now looking for ways that they can make their money useful, that can mm. work for the whole of team human. And I think that's just um, it's really exciting. And if either, there are any out there listening that want to give their money to the post-apocalypse school of Teesside, you are more than welcome to do so. We will put it to good use. And, you know, and, and we do what we can to, like, you know, Amazon. Um, we have a book launch on Saturday, this venue called Basecamp in Middlesbrough. There's a local photographer, uh, Ian Robinson, who he saw Blade Runner 2049 and walked out of there and put an orange filter on his camera. And he's been taking... Post-apocalypse shots of Teesside ever since <laughs> for the past five years. So we've got a book coming out of uh, his his photography on Saturday um, with some writers from the post-apocalypse school. And uh, Jilly Hatton. And what's it who, called, the book? Um, it's called Apocalypse When, Apocalypse How. So, <laughs> yeah, so in it we're imagining, like, how the apocalypse is going to happen and which bits of Teesside will be underwater and all of these mm, things. Yeah. But Jilly Hatton, she's from a local publishing house, Six Element Publishing, she's going to be teaching us how to make these junk journals. So the starting point is things like old COVID test kit boxes and old paracetamol boxes and old antidepressant boxes and Amazon packaging, you know, just dying it out, make pages of it, and then you put that together, you you know, old scraps of ribbon, old scraps of material. And she just turns these things that are quite negative things into things of utter beauty. And for me, that's that's a really beautiful metaphor of what we're trying to achieve mm. here, like taking the scraps and the detritus and turning that into, into things of art and beauty. And what's the business model for the school? I mean, does there any, are the teachers, can they stay alive teaching? Is there <laughs> tuition? Why does it work? No, so, I mean, we've accidentally started far quicker than we thought. As I say, I, I just kind of had the idea. Um, Arts Lab Teesside had sort of come up with ideas and modules and suddenly we were running. Um, and that wasn't supposed to be the point, you know, we were supposed to sort of spend a year or so in preparation. So we've just been running little events as we can as a kind of test, getting people to come along. Got a little bit of funding, like from, you know, Middlesbrough Arts Weekender, and so I've, I've, I, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a big pitch um, next, on Monday and really uh, approaching the local authorities, trying to build a socio-economic model to show them that if they pay for the school, it's going to, you know, 3.4 billion a year it, it costs in this country to address antisocial behaviour. Mm. And I think 
for every pound that you spend on the school, you're going to save, from the figures I'm looking at, you're going to save three pounds in tackling antisocial behaviour. So it's going to be much cheaper for the local authorities to pay to run to the school than it is to pay for what happens when you don't have a post-apocalypse school. In terms of the antisocial behaviour, in terms of the social isolation mm. and loneliness, you know, we've got all these people that... Uh, don't know where to go, don't know what to do. They're going to their doctor just because, you know, they, they don't need antidepressants. They need something to do. And, uh, you know, in each of those visits, it's £216. So this is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm crunching the numbers and hopefully on Monday I'm going to prove that financing the post-apocalypse school at Teesside is not only going to save humanity, it's going to save the local authorities a, a big right. wadge of cash. Oh, that's great. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, 10 people learning how to make dandelion wine together ends up doing more social good than nine therapy sessions and six Prozac prescriptions. <laughs> yeah, because this, because this is real. You know, that's the whole point right. of it is it, it is a hobby in a way, if people want to take it that way. It is important art in a way if people want to take it that way but it's also you know real like um, right. you know you make a beautiful bar of soap which is a thing of beauty right now but in future maybe we still want to be clean you know it's like it's not just for its own sake it's it's fun and it's creative and it's beautiful but I know that's what I love about it because it starts out this is and I've been I've been doing so many monologues about this about where is the discordian future because Operation Mindfuck in some ways worked too well and now it's Trump and the Brexit people that are using confusion and pranking to destabilize culture. So where does our lineage go? And you look at the post-apocalypse school of Teesside and on the surface, it's what we call social practice, which is a form of art that demonstrates something. And and it's a kind of a performance art. And there's a lot of these different things where you see, uh, for people who don't know about social practice, it's like objects you'll see. And they'll usually put them in a museum or a gallery, but the object has some uh, comment, like an elevator that goes nowhere. And what does that mean about going up? You know, it's, it's, it's art that communicates something socially. But... This this does that just as a thing to hear about the post-apocalypse school of Teesside changes the way people think about the future and survival and what they're doing and money. But then it's also a working post-apocalypse school, you know, <laughs> at Absolutely. the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, I have thought about other ways to make money, like, but I don't you know this idea of brand... You know, I'm sure because we, we're going to be making some truly beautiful things that will be really, yeah. really sought after. And I'm sure we can develop a brand there where people that have got too much money and don't want to make beautiful things for themselves can buy this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a little bit against the ethos, you know, and the idea that there's um, there's there's the great, you know, when uh, if anybody has been in an experience where uh, somebody's going to have a kid and you pack this bag that's like, if you need to leave at the hospital at a moment's notice, it's there to go. We want to like uh, a post-apocalypse version of this. So, you know, you've got, you've got um, cotton balls and Vaseline and a ferro rod because pretty much in, in all conditions apart from when it's hammering down you're going to be able to create fire with them you know you need a, a special finish knife because that does you've got whittling and you can do your butchery and you can do all kinds of that it's just a small knife you don't need you know in, when you see it on yeah. the tv they all have these massive swords and this you don't need that <laughs> you just need this this little little knife so the idea is that in one bag you can have everything all the essentials that you need it's like you know the alarm sounds you grab your bag. Like we've already arranged what the rendezvous points are. So it doesn't matter that the mobile networks are gone. You just head out, you grab your bag, you head out. You might take your mobile and your charger anyway in case mm -hmm. you know, life goes back to normal. But you've got everything you need. You head out and you meet your crew at the arranged rendezvous point. You set up your shelter, you get the fire together. You've got to make a smokeless fire because you want to be undiscoverable. You know, you purify your water, you forage what you need for your tea and you sit down by the fire and you sing your songs while you wait for the rest of the crews to arrive. Mm. What's a smokeless fire? So there's what techniques of building a fire. So you build stones up. So it's not completely smokeless, but unless you're very nearby, you're not going. Yeah. You know, you're not going to look at the distance and think there's a fire. Let's go and kill those people and eat them or their food. Right. 
you're also going to get less smoke in your face and and, <laughs> and in your tent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, always the thing with campfires, isn't it? No matter where you you sit, you're always the one that the smoke. I'm always finds. the one. Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh! If you want to, if you want to know which direction smoke is going, look at the opening of my tent, and you will, you will discover it. Uh, but it seems like the last stage of this, in my anarcho-syndicalist view, would be that we have a network of these. So there's a post-apocalypse school of here, there, and everywhere. Are you thinking about eventually kind of having post-apocalypse school in a box so that someone in Cincinnati can get a kit and go, here's what you need. You need to find a for someone to teach you foraging. You need this. Here's how to do it economically and something like that so we can this all do one of these and then yeah. we can trade soap with each other yeah exactly this you know that was kind of why it was the post-apocalypse school of teesside because i think in there is the hint that you're gonna have the post-apocalypse school of new york you're gonna have the yeah, post-apocalypse yeah. school of paris you're gonna have the post-apocalypse school anywhere that you like in the world you know we're we're testing the ground we're working out what modules we really need, uh, we're working out how it's going to work, how you can create a 24-7 urban space. That's the idea that, you know, it's. I mean, it's only going to work this idea that if enough people lead self-sufficient, sustainable lives, we can ward off some of the potential apocalypse scenarios. And the only way that's going to work is to get this out to as many people as possible. So it's going to start in Teesside, but we hope it's going to, yeah, it's going to take over the world. I would hope. I mean, the more of them that we have, first, the less self-defense we have to learn because everyone else is just in one of these. <laughs> and second, the better they're going to work and the more they can begin to specialize. So we could work on, on soaps, clothing, and books over here, while over there they're working on biodiesel, irrigation, and permaculture. You know, And we could start trading and sharing stuff like, they, like people used to do. Yeah, that, exactly. That's it. The idea of the school is that everyone has something to learn and everyone has something to teach. You know, the idea of it being a cashless society. So how, how, how does that function? Then it functions, you know, with this idea of a kind of human resources time bank. Like if you come to school and learn something, then come to the school and teach something. Everyone's got something mm -hmm. or you work on the land or, you, you know, you do whatever needs to be done. So, you know, we, we used to function without money. We can function without money again. And again, it's the, this idea of what's real. You know, money's a promise to pay, but now it's like, promise to pay what? You know, the world, the world, <laughs> the world owes three, the world's three trillion pounds in debt. It's like, who does it owe? Jupiter? You know, where, where, where are we with this money nonsense? So <laughs> I get it owes the past. The future owes the past, you know, until, until it owes, until the future goes bankrupt and then we get our apocalypse school. Yeah, exactly. Getting the, putting the past back into the future. Mm -hmm. Retrieving, retrieving. I mean, and the technologies are not lost. They were almost gone, but at least there were a few elders who remembered how to plant yeah. and rotate. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is this is it. This is where we're at crux point. We're at crux point with everything right now for for humanity. But I think this is it. So many skills from you know laying from dry stone walling to laying hedges to whatever it is. You know, we're we're at the cusp where so many of these skills are going to fall out of living memory. And so hopefully mm. now that we've got the post-apocalypse school, we can really preserve these and teach them and, and secure them for future generations. And you sleep well at night? No. <laughs> I don't, don't sleep very much. <laughs> <laughs> because you're worried or because you're working? Because I'm working, yeah. And, and and I suppose worry as well. I guess I get too I get too involved, I get too excited. I just feel that every minute that I have now is worth tenfold because right now, you know, the next five years are the most important five years for the whole of human civilization, as far as mm. I can see. I mean, I should just be out there in the garden. It's like, you know, we've had uh, we've had this big thing in the UK where you don't mow your lawn, rewilding for May. I don't know why it's just for May. But, but ours is kind of like that anyway. And I used to sit out there and just read books and enjoy myself. But right now, I yeah, too much work to be done. Well, I guess uh, that's not a terrible thing either, though. We get a good a good five years to focus and uh, maybe pop out on the other side. It's just it's I find it such a shame when I turn on TV and see what people are wasting their time doing, you know, to, 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 Stealing political offices, shooting up schools. It's just like, 
<laughs> the kinds of things that people are doing now when we what, with what we could be focusing on or you know or, or, or nft madness i understand why it happens it's just people go a little crazy when they're when they're worried but um there's such an easier feel good alternative you know not that you're doing this just to feel good but if it does feel good on that deep level then maybe some little uh, part of nature is is trying to egg us on to uh, a different a different mode of behavior. I think so. This is something that we all feel in our bones, you know, even if we don't consciously recognize it. And I think that's a lot of the malaise that we have on in modern westernized developed societies that even if we're not consciously thinking about it, we, we do know that things should be a bit different and that we could be more fulfilled and happier and that there are ways out there of doing that. We just got to bring them a bit more into the foreground. Well, hopefully I get, we'll get someday I'll get to serve as an adjunct to the, uh, <laughs> the, the post-apocalypse school of Teesside, or I'll, I'll come out there and do a, 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 some sort of a guest team human workshop, uh, which could be, I'll find something to contribute. Absolutely brilliant. We would absolutely love to have you. Let's see if you get over here before the school has uh, extended uh, all the way over there. I know. We'll see what happens first. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for being on Team Human. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Lisa Lovebucket of the Post-Apocalypse School of Teesside. To find out more about her, see her videos and more, just go to teamhuman.fm and follow the links. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our opening music is by Fugazi and the closing song behind me right now by Mike Watt on bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.